So the last few weeks we've been talking about community, and I mentioned two weeks ago that the church is not a building or an event, but church is a people. And the church is a, the called out people of God, a holy community made up of redeemed sinners, so to speak. Um, and here's a crazy thing. We all long for authentic community. Not, none of us like fakes. We want the real thing. We actually need it. And yet, uh, a culture of authentic community in the church actually can be very hard to foster. Because there's this pressure in the church that when we come together that we present ourselves as an ideal Christian. That we hide our struggles and we slap on our different plastic smiles and vulnerability then is replaced by a hypocritical masquerade, if I could put it that way. And the whole concept of church is lost. The church is made up of self-confessed sinners. Good morning, sinners. Who have been made into righteous righteousness in Christ Jesus. Good morning, saints. See, we're all here. And if any people on the planet should have the freedom to be authentic, it should be Christians. And so how do we create this culture of authentic community here in our church, here at Seoul? How do you build meaningful relationships with other people for the mutual building up of the body in a culture that is filled with alienation and distrust? Two weeks ago, I gave six things that we could do to start the process. I said, you know, we need to be intentional. Be intentional, get out of our comfort zones. You know, if that means meeting somebody over coffee here just in the coffee break, or if that means going online and signing up for life groups, but being intentional, being hospitable. We have lost the gift of hospitality in our culture. We need to open our houses. We're very quick to meet people off-site. We're very hesitant to bring them back in. We need to be in practice hospitality. We need to be available. Oh, why? Because I'm so busy, 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 busy. No, no, we need to be available for when people need us. Uh, we need to be teachable. We need to be open to receive from those around us, those who are experienced, those who have something to say to pour into us. We need to be forgiving. Why? Because we're humans and we step on each other's toes, but we still need to be forgiving and we need to be vulnerable and open in that process. And so getting involved in life groups, like you know, the question I ask, is it really all that hard? And uh, maybe you're a little worried when we start talking or pushing about life groups that uh, you're a little worried about this whole life group thing. Maybe you're thinking, I don't need a life group. All right, that's fine. Maybe you attended a life group once. I get it. I really do. Or maybe you're thinking, you know, I'm not going to go to some group and spill my guts and get all vulnerable and share my feelings. I, I totally get that. I, I, I totally understand that. And it wouldn't surprise me if many people in this room today felt that way. Because we live in this culture where connecting with others has become increasingly unnatural and abnormal. Isn't that crazy? And it's strange when you think about it, and because it, it, it certainly hasn't always been this way. And we've begun to progress towards this disconnectedness and isolationalism. That's the word I was looking for. You think about it, even our basic homes, the architectural design. It reflects a culture of isolation. Well, how is that? Homes don't have a big front porch anymore. You have a door. You have a stoop, right? You also have what is known as a remote control. And what do you do? You hit your remote control. You drive into your garage. And before you're even out of your car, the door is closing. 
Uh, one of the latest crazes, obviously, in home improvement, if you are forced to watch shows like that, like I am, um, is that there's, there, there's really now the only living space at a home is the backyard, right? And they put in all the beautiful patio stones, and you have your new gas grill, and you can have your refrigerator, and you can have running water, you can have everything there. And most houses are all then encased with what? A fence. What kind of fence? A privacy fence, six, seven feet. Why? To keep the neighbors out, right? Because you don't want the neighbors seeing your business. So we do it alone. Our culture is isolating. We see this trend towards, like I said, the garage door opener. That's, that's one, right? But uh, this isolation is significant. And I find it incredibly ironic when we even look at technology and the, the advancements that we're coming through even in our day and age. The more advanced we are with technology, the more disconnected we become because our technology is actually sold to us. And if you're one of these peddlers of technology, forgive me for saying this, but you're, you, we're sold these things, these things, and uh, we're told how quicker life will be and how uh, more efficient life will be when I have the latest and greatest gadget in my hand. It doesn't matter if it's an iPhone or whatever. It's just that it's the latest craze. And it, it, it's, technology is going to tell me that the, these things that are harder in my life are now going to be made easier and quicker. And so because of that, I will now have time for things that matter most, like trolling Facebook, right? And wishing I had more likes on Instagram, things like that. But that's just the way we are. And, and in reality, I see that technology actually begins to create further rifts in our culture. Especially when you use caps in text or email. Why are you yelling? Ah, just talking loud. That's all I'm doing. You know, it, it, email is now impersonal. We say things in email that you'd never say face-to-face to people. The same thing goes with texting, the same thing goes with Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and all these given appearance of, that we're connected in this cyber world, but in reality, it's extremely impersonal. It really is. And so today, today we're doing, people are doing more things to connect, but the connections are increasingly superficial. They swipe right. And what's more, they don't need, their, their deepest needs are not met. And there's a call out to the church, and there's a call out for community. Jordan last week made reference to Genesis chapter 2.18. It's good. Uh, it's not good for man to be alone. Again, this, it's true for this verse in re- reference to, to a man needing a wife, but it's also true in the general being that alone is not a good thing. We have a word to describe those who are alone. We call it lonely. Right? Loneliness is not part of God's design for the human race. He created us to be together and to need each other. We're designed by God, when you think about it, uh, to live in relationship. And the best way you can tell if you're experiencing community is by answering this question. Who's around me? Who's speaking into my life? Who's speaking into my life in a spiritual way? Because you think about it, we are physical beings, so we take care of ourselves physically. We're mental beings, so we need our mental health, and we need to take care of ourselves mentally, but we're also spiritual. So because we're spiritual beings, it stands to reason that we should take care of ourselves spiritually. And God not only created the heavens and the earth and everything, and he called all that good, 
but there was that one thing he called not good, and that's when Adam was alone. And so we're made, when you think about it, by the creator to be part of a group, to be part of a family. We're made to be included. None of us like to be excluded. It hurts. It's painful. Whether you're the last pick or not picked at all, we don't like being excluded. And God's designed us not to be alone, and having two or three others around is what it's all about. We all need people who love you, who watch out for you, who, who got your back. We all need people in our lives. We were made to be part of a group. We're made to be part of a family. And as humans, God has designed us not to be alone. And it's more than just marriage. We actually need each other. All of us have certain longings, we have certain cries, we have certain desires, and we come to a place like this where we're looking for those desires and longings to be met. We are. And the word community around here is interesting, because some would say, well, it's just a buzzword. Others would actually say, you know, that when soul was smaller, the community was easier, now that it's bigger, it's... it's there's none, or, or some would actually say, I have to go elsewhere to find it. Others have jumped right in, and they actually love the experience that they're a part of. The fact of the matter is this. All of us ask ourselves some major questions when it comes to being involved in a faith community like Seoul. And the biggest question is, where do I fit in? Now, again, according to Paul in the New Testament, community was part of God's plan for the church. Look what he says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you're citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together, we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We're carefully joined together. Together, you need it in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. There's, there's this concept of inclusiveness and togetherness. And so part of God's plan for the church was those who would worship together would form this authentic community with one another. And, and that we would physically, uh, become physically what is already true of all those who belong to Jesus spiritually. And that is to become a family. That is to become with one another. And when you are in family, when you think about it, you're in each other's stuff. You ever do laundry with four boys and see who fights over the underwear and socks? You know, you, you fight over different things, both the good and the bad stuff. You share it all together as family. You irritate each other. Have you ever irritated a sibling? Have you ever been irritated by a sibling? Have you ever been irritated by your pastor? Of course, it's just there. Thank you. I'll drink to that. <laughs> But you wouldn't dream of having them around, right? Yeah, you need us, and that's what family is. We, we need each other. We miss each other when somebody gets married and moves on and establishes a new life. There's an emptiness in our house. Sorry, I didn't mean to be preaching to you guys. <laughs> that's still empty, man. It's still empty. You, you get what I'm saying? We need this community. And uh, here's the dilemma. And Jordan said it last week, much of what we do on Sunday morning is not conducive. And, and, and I wish people would get this out of their head. It's not conducive to this type of community building that I'm talking about. You just can't show up and, oh, I'm going to have just great friends. I firmly believe that what we do on Sunday is important, without question. 
without question, gathering together. Corporate worship is an important time. The, the time for prayer is important. Connecting with people is important. But we gather for the instructions of God's word, and that's an important part of a Jesus-following experience. It's mandated throughout the scriptures, but it isn't the same as community building. So how do we solve this? The, the early church has the answer. And it happened there, and, I, and this is how they dealt with the challenge. In Acts chapter 2, we read that all the believers worshiped together at the temple each day, but then they met in the homes for uh, the Lord's Supper, and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. And so the very first community of believers gathered together on a regular basis for worship, for prayer, for study, for fellowship, and it wasn't easy to follow Christ in the first century. Times were tough. Persecution was rampant. Uh, the early believers, though, were bound together in this friendship, in this fellowship, in this community. They had each other's back. They encouraged one another. They needed each other. There was strength in numbers. And they knew it wouldn't happen all the time at the temple. They understood that. That was their large group meeting. That was fine. That was their equivalent to our Sunday morning experience. But they also had a plan to meet together in their homes. And notice how those smaller settings, that's where the Lord's Supper took place. That's where there was joy. That's where there was generosity. There was community happening at that point. They shared meals together. And people wanted to be a part of a community like that. Why? Because we as people crave relationship. And they crave that kind of community as well. And it's still very true today. And, and, and today, everyone at Seoul gets involved in some type of community. That is our request. Uh, the Lord, when that happens, the Lord begins to supernaturally bless us. He will add to us daily because people will see this type of community that he's shaping us into. And they'll want to be a part of that. People are curious. They want to know. Unfortunately, in our culture, we're so isolationists and protectionists, we put up fences and boundaries that keep people out rather than trying to bring them into our world. And relationships keep us spiritually thriving. Are you thriving spiritually or are you just surviving? Because there's a difference. Surviving means you're just going through the motions. You're just going through the activities, the routines of the Christian life. Thriving. You're going through those same motions, acti activities, and routines with life and with passion and with enthusiasm because you actually see God working. You see God working in your life. You see God working in the lives of others. And so there's two primary purposes for relationships in the Christian life. The first one is the perseverance of the faith. Hebrews chapter 3 says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This idea of perseverance, this idea of encouraging one another, this idea of holding each other accountable in the faith. The writer of Hebrews also says to stir up one another towards love and good deeds, to keep pushing us to move forward. So how do we stir up radical acts of love? How do you do that? I honestly believe that it can only happen in the context of small groups where two or three people start getting this crazy idea, hey, we can do this. 
And as we listen and as we pray, God can actually give us words of life to address the situation before us. And God brings about radical acts of love by stirring each other up. And we, we need passionate people to stir up passion in our lives. Do you ever get beside somebody who's just really excited about something? And they're really passionate. What happens? You're either like, uh, or you join in with them. It's one or the other. A great example of uh, inspiring passion is found, again, in Hebrews. Remember those earlier days after you've received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Now, he's talking to the church. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. These guys were persecuted for their faith. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. For you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. You stand in it together. In the New Testament, there were no Lone Ranger Christians. Believers needed each other. They expected them to be there for each other. And likewise, we need each other, and God expects us to be there for each other. God has ordained that we play a vital part in each other's faith. Think about that for a moment. And for that reason, we're commanded in Hebrews 10.25 not to give up meeting together. Why? To encourage one another. God has a purpose for putting us all together. You know, and as we read the book of Acts, we see that they made every effort to be led by God's spirit to think and to act like Christ. And consequently, God used this community of faith to do some incredibly powerful things in the lives of countless believers who were living in a pagan world. And God's plan hasn't changed, and his desires to use his church to do some powerful things in our lives hasn't changed. And the community of faith is absolutely crucial to our spiritual well-being. It's not about just going to church. We are the church. We are community. We have this desire to be connected with others, and yet we still have these reservations, or better yet, we still have fear. there There are people who are afraid of commitment of life groups. Right? Years past, I would see, you know, and talk to people. Yes, I, I need community. I need a friend. I need a group of people around me. But when it came to actually committing and being a part of that, they, that some fears would, you know, trump what's going on in their lives. And many times when, when people think about life groups, they felt that, you know, if you joined a life group, you know, in a community, you would be in that life group forever or until you died or until Jesus came back. And you really didn't have much of an option. But last week, you know, Pastor Jordan, he outlined how, how our life groups are time-bound, meaning that they actually have a very clear beginning and a clear ending. And you can choose, you know, from weekly, bi-weekly, or even monthly. All you need to do is go to the website and literally begin to sign up. And, and we have different leaders still in the south end of town. We're still looking for some more hosts for families. Like, and if there, when you go to our website and there's nothing there that satisfies you, email us and uh, we'll work with you to make it happen. But, you know, it's crazy because another fear that people have about their group is that their group is going to be filled with weird or crazy people. I would just like you right now to look around the room. Seriously, just look, look around the room. Now, remember, everyone that you're looking at right now thinks that they are normal. <laughs> Do you feel that you're surrounded by crazy people? 
If not, the nutter is you. I just got to say it right there, all right? We're all a little cuckoo in our own way. Now, some folks, they actually take their crazy to an entirely different level. I'll, I'll, I'll honor that, but, you know, and making them a little bit more difficult uh, to handle than others. But understanding actually what type of nut job you are, or maybe what type of nut job you're facing, if I can put it that way, and equipping you with a few learning skills will actually prepare you for the next raving lunatic that comes your way. How, can I, how, how, how better can I do that? So, I've been in ministry, I don't even know how long anymore. And over the years, I've dealt with enough people that I've actually been able to classify and stereotype people. And I want to share with you my stereotypes from a ministry perspective. And I hope you're okay with that. It has nothing to do with the Bible this morning. But I'm going to line it. The characters and community, that's exactly what it is. And... Uh, we find these people not just in church, but you find them at your house, you find them at your work, you'll find them at school, and possibly the characteristics that I'm going through, as I shared with one staff member, they actually said to me, I see a little bit of myself in some of those. So, so I believe what I'm going to do is I'm going to help you uh, with your, your home or with your work, but also possibly when you enter into a life group, I'm going to give you some tools. You may want to write these down. Uh, you know, or maybe you're going to be looking into a mirror, I'm not sure. But, over the years, there are some people who I'd like to call steamrollers. Do you know these of which I speak? They run right over you. I think at one point I was a steamroller quite early in my ministry, you know. Uh, they, they, they tend to be angry people who haven't, you know, met a confrontation they didn't like. They use intimidation or maybe threats or sarcasm to control... Uh, to control others. So steamrollers are usually the bullies in school that never got the buck kicking that they needed at that time. And since fighting as an adult now is called assault and you can actually do jail time, you know, we need to handle steamrollers with a less violent way of dealing with them, all right? So how do you deal with a person who's a steamroller in your family, at work, or even in, in a life group? Well, it's basically you remain calm and you don't get emotional. Drives them nuts. You just keep it cool, calm, collective, because they can't even spell collective when they're wound up. And using a cool, calm, steady voice with people who are, are steamrollers will assure you that, you know, you just say, hey, look, at, I, hear, I hear what you're saying. It's all good. But you stick to your position. You hold firm. And once you've made yourself clear, you allow them to have the last word. It's okay. Give them the last word because it's not about winning. It's all about respect. There are steamrollers in our lives. There's also what I call vampires. Yes, there are vampires in church. I also call them joy suckers. All right, you got, you got this? They will suck the life right out of you. You find these people, right? They're constant whining, they're constant complaining, and overall negative attitude. Now, the crazy thing is, I'm describing people and names are popping into your head, right? Isn't that nuts? How do you deal with a vampire? How do you, how do you, well, you have to keep your, your interactions with people who want to suck the life out of you very brief and to the point. You don't placate them. You don't apologize for having a different point of view. Instead, you focus on problem solving and, and have them offer solutions to the problems that they bring up. Right? And don't allow the negativity to get out of control. We can handle this in community. Then there are the lemmings. 
I love the lemmings. Do you know what a lemming is? A little animal that makes it jump off a cliff for no real reason. That's what a lemming is. Okay, let's do it. All right. right. So this is a lemming. Now, the fact is the lemming wants to be liked by everybody. You know the lemmings now? You know, they're the people who say yes to absolutely everything. Okay, okay, you want me? Okay, okay. And what happens is that they don't think through their prior commitments. And what they do is they focus on the latest demands. You're tracking with me on how I'm describing them. And, And what happens to the lemming is that they cannot follow through with their commitments. And when they can't follow through with their commitments, what do they do? They frustrate everybody else. Are you with me? And also... Uh, they don't have time to, uh, you know, to deal with their overcommitment. And what happens is they become resentful. So a lemming is this person that's always, yes, 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 I'll do whatever you want. But deep down, they become resentful to people. So how do you deal with them? Well, you need to have a conversation with the lemming. You need to have, you pull them into an environment away from the cliff where they feel safe. You got what I'm saying? And you give them permission you know, to be completely honest with you, but you also have to assure them that you'll do the same. And the best advice for people who are lemmings is to replace that word yes with the phrase, let me to get back to you about that. And to help people. And this will give them time to think before committing so that they're not frustrated and other people aren't frustrated and you can work together. Then you have the nothing person. You know the nothing person. They don't contribute, they contribute nothing to the conversation. Basically, these folks basically grunt or just remain silent through the entire time. You know, you can't even get feedback. They try to control the situation. It's interesting because a nothing person is all about control. They'll drive you crazy, especially if you're a lemming and you want a response, but the nothing person doesn't give you anything. How do you deal with them? Well, simply, you just have to start to begin to ask open-ended questions that cannot be answered with a yes, no, or grunt. Right? you got to deal with people. You have to understand people. You have to get into people's lives. Then there's the professor, or as my life group calls it, the reverend doctor. <laughs> Normally, I always uh, hang my life group out to dry, but I'll say this for myself today. This person is also known as the know-it-all. All right, you got me? Now, again, there's other professors out there that it's possible that you've invested a lot of time and money on your education, and it's possible that these professors have an elitist attitude. They can speak very condescending down to people. You got me, right? And they have low tolerance for correction or contradiction. They're quick to prove you wrong. How do you deal with the professor? You know what I've realized as a reverend doctor? (laughs) I just need to be heard. I just need to be heard. I don't need to be agreed with. I just need to be heard. And it's interesting because you you need to build a rapport of trust and work as a team instead of working against each other in community and use we and us instead of I and me. And what happens, it begins to give people a sense of ownership of community together. And I'll just have to say this pridefully that the professor is an excellent addition to your pool of people to learn from. (laughs) Then we have the CELO. Can you pronounce CELO? Yeah, uh, sesquipedalian loquaciousness. Yeah, you know what this is? This means talking a lot using big words. I kid you not. That's exactly what this is. All right? We have other terms, very crass, that we use for people like this, starting with bull. But the difference between the the professor and the CELO is that the professor is a know-it-all. The CELO thinks they know it all. You got me? 
You, and we know people like that. They're usually cocky and they just learn enough about a subject so they, it sounds like they know what they're talking about. And why are they doing it? Just for the sake of attention. So how do you deal with them? Well, you try, try not to pop them in the mouth for starters. That's probably the best thing. And, uh, but uh, watch out for the generalizations and, and ask them to be more specific. Hi, sweetie. I love kids. I am so glad you're here this morning. <laughs> I wish all of you were like this. Just sitting at my feet. <laughs> you know, when, when a CELO talks, and, and usually, like I said, they usually use uh, very general words like everybody. You, you ever been in those conversations? Well, everybody. Ask them who specifically. But one of the things, too, with a know-it-all, you have to resist the urge to embarrass them publicly. And uh, I, I know for a person like, uh, for like myself, like a reverend doctor, you want to embarrass people like that, but you have to refrain from that. Why? Because we're part of a community. We have to work together. Then we have the sniper. You know these people. These are interesting. These are, these are the ones who shoot you down uh, with hidden attacks. They're those innuendos, those digs, you know, the sarcasm, right? Uh, perfectly timed eye roll. It just happens right there. And they can make you look foolish. You ever notice that when you're dealing with people like that? They exclude people. They withhold very important information. And all the while, they actually, what they try to do is they try to stay under the radar, but they're still wreaking havoc, especially in a group. Well, how do you deal with them? Well, you got to learn to bring the sniper out of hiding. You, you have to ask questions that are very direct, like, what do you mean by that? You know, what does that have to do with this? You have to be very much right there. You want to find the underlying reason for their attacks without becoming defensive. You got to stay calm when you call people out like this. You can't be animated because you just lose out on that way. These people are skilled in covert attacks, not into face-to-face -face confrontation. But they're people that we live with. Then we have the werewolf, the Jekyll Hyde person. You know, they're, they're perfectly normal most of the time, but suddenly they burst into this un- focused rage that has nothing to do with the subject of hand. You ever do that? You trigger somebody and all of a sudden you don't know where that came from? And in the aftermath of the attack, they act like nothing's ever happened. No, it's okay. Let's just get back to normal. And you're kind of, you're still trying to put the house back together because the tornado just went through it. And your goal with the person like this is, is not to control the person, but is to take control of the situation. You know, you can't control a Jekyll or Hyde once they've tra transformed. But you can control how you yourself respond and focus on preventing future attacks and dealing with people. You know, how do you deal with them? You know, you want them to know that they've not only been heard what they said, but you, you understand how they feel. You've got to be able to empathize with them. I mean, once they've calmed down, once they've taken a break, you know, you don't try to fix anything at that moment. Because many times when we're dealing with people, we try to fix them. No. You come back later to the issue at times where things can be discussed in a calm and, and, and productive way. And it's during that calm and productive time, that conversation, that in no uncertain terms, that there be, you have to explain, look, your behavior was, was unacceptable, will not be tolerated. You just can't do that. But those are people that we live with, are they not? But what do we do? We put up fences. And so when people begin to show their colors, we would rather block them out and keep them away from us than actually try to work with them to help them be better. Why? Because we all think we are normal. And we're not. There are some of you who are the big spoon. Now, the big spoon's main goal of life is what? 
They stir the pot. You know those people that stir the pot? They're not part of the drama. No, no. They just keep it going. They just keep escalating it. Ah, like the bitches. That's what they do. You know, how do you deal with them? Well, you don't engage the spoon uh, when they come to stir up trouble in your corner of the world. You, you say as little as possible to these people. Because a spoon is like a reality TV producer, right? They take your words and they twist it like a pretzel. You can't win. They're stirring up trouble for you. They're stirring up trouble for other people. Make the point to clear the air with the other person in a private setting. So if you know the big spoon, you got to pull them away privately. You got to make them aware that you see their game so that things don't get out of control. You nip it in the bud while you can. Again, we all know the manipulators, right? They're charming. They're silver-tongued snakes. That's basically what they are. They can convince their way out of any sticky situation. They can talk you and I almost into anything. And so your goal in any group when you come across a person like this is to protect yourself. And again, it's not putting up a barrier. It's just protecting yourself. And how do you deal with them? Well, you keep your guard up at all times. You be aware of the fact that the person's obviously working an angle. You and I see that when we run into people. They're they're professional con artists. You know, when you've been in the ministry for 30 years, you've heard all the stories. And you you almost become uh, dead inside. You lose your empathy. But you see when a manipulator comes in. So what do you do? You stand your ground when they talk to you. Instead of doing something, you stand your ground. Because it's probably something you don't want to do. And so you have a conversation. And you lay out the boundaries very clearly. We also have Jabberwockies. Do you know what a Jabberwocky is? The church is full of Jabberwockies, actually. We have another name for it. The Bible calls it a sin. That's why I use the term Jabberwocky. Because then we can, you know, be happy with the way that we do ourselves and not feel that we're sitting. It's called gossips. All right? They walk around jabbering on and on about everything that's not their business. You ever meet people like that? Everything that's not their business. And sometimes when we get into small groups, there's, there's somebody who's a Jabberwocky. And they start going on about stuff that's not their business. Now, they're different than the big spoon, right, that likes to stir and stir. No, they, they, they rarely go directly to, to par- parties targeted in the gossip because their job is to report. So a Jabberwocky reports uh, not to get involved. So they share. Um, you can't avoid a Jabberwocky. They're always around. But you can't avoid engaging in gossip, Right? First of all, you take anything that a Jabberwocky says with a grain of salt. You don't really have to listen to it. There probably isn't much truth left in that juicy little news of the day. But I think we have to make it clear to people who are talking about others and sharing gossip that we have no interest in talking about other people behind the back. As a matter of fact, if you continue to persist on, then I'm going to let you know that the targeted person that you're talking about and spreading rumors about, I'm going to go have a conversation with them about what you've shared with me. Ooh. Now again, it's an attitude of the heart, is it not? There's also the EGR. These are my favorite. EGR, extra grace required. The church is full of it. Everybody put up your hand, because you are. Extra grace required people. Um, It's funny, because usually these are emotional. It's not funny, but it's true. It's emotionally needy people who come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. And... If you aren't careful, they'll drown you in an ocean of sorrow. 
The EGR will talk to anybody who will listen about the numerous times that they were so close to success until, you know, somebody else screwed them over and somebody else caused them to fail. And they, they seek attention from people because they want people to feel sorry for them about their tales of woe. Here's the issue. We need grace to deal with people like this. Grace to listen. Grace to be present. Grace to pray with them. But they also need our grace to help them be encouraged to see that the glass is half full and that there's actually good things in life and that they should be focusing on those things as well. And then we have what I call the poker player. Now, the poker players, there are poker players in church. I don't know if you know that. They have a handful of cards, but the biggest card that they like to play is what I call the God card. And this is when people say, God told them something. You ever run across people like this? God told them something. God said something to them. Now, if you've been in church any amount of time, you've probably heard this card played over and over again. And, And it's for this reason alone Listen to me very carefully. It's for this reason alone that we need to be involved in life groups. And let me explain. In ancient time, in New Testament times, and I don't have the time to give you all the the scriptures, but people did not discern God's will or their gifts on their own. All of this was done in community. It was all done as surrounded by people who wanted to help you, who had good intentions for you to figure your stuff out. However, in today's Christianity, in our culture, which has become very individualistic, people say, hey, Jerry, it's my relationship with God. It's my business, not yours. To which I say, no. Sorry. The Bible says that we're given to each other when you think about it. And... and. Uh, <clears throat> And that's what Christian community is all about. That we believe that we cannot discern God's will in isolation. And therefore, we need to go through this awkward process of intimacy, of allowing people to scrutinize our interpretation of God's plan for our lives. That's pretty heavy. I can't tell you how many times I've heard over the years people say to me, you know, God told me, and then you, you fill in the blank. And what I found in my experience is that when people say, when they play that God card, when they say that God told me, that's when they actually, they don't want to listen to people and to reason or, or they want to sound super spiritual. And when people lay down that God card, they're practically saying to you and to others that you don't know how to discern God's will, but I do. That's what they're saying. And so, in effect, when somebody says, well, God told me, and they play the God card, what they're saying is, I'm not open to your advice. I've already discerned God's word. God spoke to me, so the case is closed. And so I'm of the mind, and I'd argue very eloquently if I had the time from the New Testament, that if God truly spoke to you, then all the more you should allow your spiritual friends or family members or mentors speak to you as well. And I understand that there are some people who you shouldn't listen to their opinion because they have opinions on everything. I get that. 
But what I'm talking about is that it's important for us to listen to our spiritual friends, people who actually care for you, people who have given you permission and authority to speak into your life. Those things begin to develop. Yes, you have ministry pastors and mentors and other things like that, but you can also see that happening in a life group. And what we have done, though, is we have pushed people out of the discernment process, which has resulted in people doing very silly and destructive things all in the name of God. I can't tell you how many times people have come to me, not for wisdom, but rather for confirmation of their opinion that they already hold on to. And people who want validation, why? For their bad ideas rather than impartation for a better idea. And so in pastoral circles, it's interesting. I, I haven't, I've noticed that a lot of people, in, instead of being sensed, they went. You, you tracking with me on that? In other words, they really didn't listen to the spiritual leadership and advice and counseling. They just set out to do their own thing and they paid for it. They crowded people out of the discernment process and as a result, they ended up struggling because they missed out on the very transference, I believe, of God's power that has been meant to come through a spiritual covering like another church. The goal is not control. Because there's wisdom out there. There are godly people in the church who are not controlling people, who don't want to control people, but God has blessed them with divine insight that when we go and we talk to them, that they can give us insight for our life and we need to learn how to surround ourselves with people who have that godly insight. I often thought that there is a discerning process when somebody says, God told me. Obviously, I can't argue that, that, that statement. If you came to me and said, look at Jerry, you know, God told me. Okay. You know, conversation's over. I can't, I can't argue that. But I can say this. The call of God on a person's life is personal and intimate. If you told me he spoke to you, I just listen. That's it. But there's also a discernment process here. And I believe that the call of God comes to us in two parts, if I can articulate this way. There's the internal call and there is the external call. The internal call is what you feel that you're called to do. What are you called to do? What do you feel that you're called to do? So if I feel that I'm called to future ministry, if I feel that I'm called to, to launch a business or to be a dancer or a doctor or a mother or whatever, you get the idea. That's the internal call. This is what I feel. The external call is what other people that you trust say that you're called to do. Maybe other people are saying, hey, you know what? You're a fantastic writer. Or, you know, every time I'm around you, you know, I feel that I could pour out my life to you. Maybe you should be a counselor or a therapist. So once you have an internal call of God, what I encourage people to do is you go out and you seek godly counsel you allow people who you spiritually trust to speak and to ask hard questions of your call. Well, if God told you, allow us to ask some questions. And then you'll know that you're hot on the trail of finding your purpose when your internal call matches your external call. In other words, we need both. They need to line up. And sometimes it may actually take a while before that even happens. You know, here's a problem with a lot of people. They get this idea that they have this internal call. They place the God card down. You know, because all I really need is a feeling in our heart. And, you know, then we're going to determine that no other voices are actually required. 
I just want to confess this morning to all of you that the Holy Spirit told me I'm going to be the next Canadian idol. (laughs) But I don't understand why people just don't listen to me. I know I have it. I can do it. Right? I'm a great singer. Oh, solo mio. I can do it. Of course, you're all rolling your eyes. Thanks. And what happens is we, we come across people like that, and then they're mad, right? And they're disillusioned with the world, right? People refuse to see my gifts. You ever heard that one? I'm a great dancer, right? Have you ever seen me dance? I'm phenomenal. Why can't people just see it? Why can't I just be hired by the Royal Winnipeg Ballet? Because I have an awesome feather and bubbles number that everybody needs to see. You should be paying me to dance because it's in me. We all know people like that in some kind of industry. It doesn't matter what it is. And the problem is they just haven't actually discerned God's will. They, they somehow have thought that it's about the internal call when it's really about both the internal and external. And, and you don't and you shouldn't have to make it happen if you're truly serving in the area of your greatest gift. The door is going to open to you. You know, and then there are people who have said, well, you know, I got my internal call, but I, I did get an external call, but it's still not working, Jerry. It's not working. Well, I have to remind you that there are two types of people that you cannot get your external call from. Unspecialized people and people that are incredibly close to you in terms of family or roommates. See, unspecialized people are not skilled in the area that you feel called to. Are you tracking with me? Now, there are people that are out there who are by nature encouragers. They're great people. They will say encouraging things all the time. You hear it all, live your dreams. You know, go out, you can, you can do it. You know, stuff like that. And if you want to know if you have an external call, let me say this. Put it to the test and go to somebody who's thriving in the area that you feel called to and ask them what they think. Look to a specialist. Look to a specialist. The other group you can't trust are people who are too close to you. And like I said, sometimes they're friends and family. Just because your mama calls you beautiful doesn't make you a supermodel. You're with me, you're tracking with me, but some people don't see that. You know, some people are going to see you as beautiful no matter what you are, and, and, and somehow you can misrepresent those things. And some people around you, when you think of it, they love you, but they will be careful with what they say to you. Why? Because they know you, and they know that you may be insecure, and they know that they don't want to hurt your friendship, and they, if they spoke the cold, hard truth with you, is that, ah, you're ugly. You're not going to make that. So the non-separatists and the people who are too close are, are bad sources to figuring out your external call. And that's why I have always preached that your calling, what you're called to, is going to be confirmed in the community or confirmed in the congregation. It's those people around you who will help you recognize and affirm that God has called you to something specific. That's what community is about. So if God is speaking to you, he should, not, should he not be also speaking to me and the others that are involved in the conversation with you? There's an affirmation. It's a biblical line. I'm of the mind that when God speaks to an individual, it's purely subjective. I get that. However, if you're going to bring that conversation up with other people, when you begin to make it public, then that 
point, it's open to questioning. Well, how can you dare say that? Because I look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and it says test everything and hold on to what's good. That's part of community, that we're working together. We want the best. We're not insecure. We want the best for those around us. And so in the process of testing, we should have the ability to question what you believe God told you. And if, if we're not, then maybe it was the pizza or the cucumbers from the night before speaking to you. And unfortunately, many people, like I said, use the God card like the Trump card. And you just cannot argue or win or even have an intelligent conversation with somebody who plays it all the time. And I say this all about people and why. Well, according to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, people require more than just having their basic, basic physiological needs met. They also require safety, love, belonging, esteem, and as Maslow would say, self-actualization. But when our needs aren't being met, for whatever reason, we subconsciously do what is necessary to acquire what is missing, and hence those, all those different types of people types that I shared with you earlier. And that's why we have all different types of people in our church, in our community, in our places of work. And they're found here in the church. And that's okay, because that's what we're made up of. And so whatever group you join, there are going to be weird people there because you're going to be there. <laughs> really, really. You're the weird one. Walk into a group owning it that you're the weird one in the group and everybody else is normal, and then everybody's going to be great. When you have that self-realization and you're on a good starting place, you, you know, again, remember when you join a life group, you don't immediately turn into a saint either because you don't, shouldn't be expecting other people to do so as well. It's not going to happen. You know, here at Seoul, we often preach this. There's no perfect people allowed. Just come. Just be a part of it. You know, it'll give you the opportunity for spiritual growth that is dramatically accelerated than trying to grow on your own spiritually. We need each other. We really do. You have to take risks. You have to take risks. You have to reach out to others in your small group. You may not find your best friend. You may not find your soulmate. But I can promise you this, you're going to meet people that you'll get to know, people that maybe you don't even know today, and you'll have the opportunity to make friends. And when you think of it this way, you'll be given the chance to make some buddies. Buddies turn into lifelong friends. And you may not be the best friend you've ever had in a life group, and that's fine, but the chances of you finding a best friend uh, by not being in a life group is, is closer to nil. And it's not going to happen with us just sitting here on a Sunday morning. We're created for community. The journey of life, the journey of faith is incredibly trying. It's not easy. Although we live in probably one of the easiest cultures of Canada. But our journey of life, our journey of faith can be difficult. It can be painful. painful. It can be filled with discouragement, can it not? Relentless temptation, right? Debilitating sins. Ridicule burdensome weaknesses, heavy burdens that we carry, unanswered questions, rejection. Like we all go through all of that. And it's a little wonder that God has given us the family of God and the fellowship of believers to walk through it together. And it's an absolutely essential source of strength and guidance. The life groups need to learn to care for one another. And let me be very frank this morning. As staff, sometimes we are absolutely the last ones to know, and I've said this over and over again. I've got to keep bringing it up. 
when there's crisis, when there's sickness, when somebody's connected in a small group, though, that group tends to help them go through their stuff. And for me, it's great to hear that people are surrounding them with prayer and meeting their needs. Nothing is better than when I get a phone call saying, hey, so-and-so is sick, and I phone them, I say, what can we do? And I hear, ah, oh, my life group's got me covered. But the opposite is true, too. I get frustrated when I hear that somebody has gone through a crisis, and we find out, in one case, just recently, three months later, three months later, that... It was never brought to our attention. And what happens sometimes in that case, not in the one that I'm talking to, but in, that, in some cases, individuals feel so alone that they end up leaving the church. Why? Because the church, they get angry and bitter at the church because nobody cared. Well, we do care if we knew. Part of that would be solved if you were part of a life group. The other part would be solved if the life group would at least contact the pastoral staff and then we can do what we want to do. We can't read minds no matter how hard we try. And as, as a staff, we actually cannot care for each one of you individually. There's just too many people because that's why we need life groups. We're going to be doing a school of ministry that's going to be taught by Joanne Hollander, who's a chaplain here in our city. She's going to do a two-day two school of ministry on, uh, uh, on care, on what it means to give pastoral care. If you're involved in any type of leadership or if you're just in, interested in what does it mean to give pastoral care, I want to encourage you to sign up in October, two Thursday nights in October. We're a community of faith. That's what we are. We're a special place where we can minister and be ministered to because we need each other. And so this community of faith actually needs priority in our lives. That The term one another appears 91 times in the New Testament. 35 times, there, it's an occurring word pattern which mentions a verb followed by the term one another. So like love one another or whatever. So these one another passages teach us how to love one another in community. And how can any of us possibly live these community imperatives to one another if we're not living in radical community, if we're not actually involved with other people in a life group setting? You can't live out scripture if there's no another to live with. This is what we're called to do. And the overall command is found here. Matthew chapter 23, when asked, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We have to start somewhere. So, let's start together. Will you stand with me? So I'm going to ask you to do something a little weird and woozy today. I'm going to ask you to lay hands on one another. Now, of course, some people are going, woo! Other people are going, oh, you've got to be kidding. He hasn't even used deodorant. That's all right. You can tell him after he can take a shower. So, Yes, this is a little strange, a little weird. I'm going to encourage you to put your hand on the shoulder next to the other person. It's actually, this is quite significant when it comes to the, to the New Testament because Paul talks a lot about the impartation, the laying on of hands, the commissioning, the ones being sent uh, for, for healing, for the receiving of healing, the laying of, on of hands that took place. That's a whole other five sermons on its own. But today, we're laying hands on each other as a symbol of connectedness, and a reminder, because you feel somebody, that you are not on this journey alone. So place your hands on the shoulders of those around you and simply pray with me, will you? Father, I thank you for the person on my left.
So now in your own way, thank yourself for the person on your left. And God, I thank you for the person on my right. So just take a moment and thank the Lord for the person on your right. I thank you that you have brought them in my life today. So God, now for these people on my right or on my left, I pray a blessing on them. Will you do that right now where you're at? Pray a blessing on them and ask that they will sense God's presence in a powerful way. Father, there are those days where we hurt inside and our faith is weak and maybe it's today for some and we hide our faces behind masks so that people won't see the hurt. So give us courage to remove the masks. Give us the ability to be honest and transparent with those that you've placed in our lives, with those on our right and with those on our left and maybe with those that we are yet to meet. May we learn to carry each other's burdens with joy, with love, and with tenderness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. One receiving blessing did likewise. If you haven't signed up for a life group, go to our website. Do that. If you can't find something that's suitable, just email the office and we'll look after it. We'll get a hold of you. But Soul Sanctuary, here it is. We came in weakness, so now go in strength. We came in alone, so go together. We came in brokenness. Now I encourage you to go in wholeness. We came with our questions. I want to encourage you to leave knowing that Jesus Christ is the answer. We came in empty-handed. I pray that you leave with your heart full. If you came in defeated and lost and full of self, selflessness and sin, may you go forgiven, found, and in the victory of Christ. Why? Because soul. We go because he sends us. We go because he fills us. And we go because he goes with us. So now, go. See you next week.